We are going to be in Isaiah chapter 53 primarily. We're going to be starting in Isaiah 52, and we're going to be starting in verse uh, 13 of chapter 52, and I'm going to read it. And this passage, as most of you know, is a one of the most powerful passages about the coming Messiah in the entire Old Testament. So much could be said and preached out of a passage like this, and so it's been an interesting challenge to decide exactly how to do that and what the Lord wants to bring out of this, but I trust it will be helpful today. So let's start by reading this passage together. Starting in Isaiah 52, chapter 13, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. And his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has, been, has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected by man, men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous." He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession 
for the transgressors. Let's pray. Lord, take this familiar passage. Lord, speak it into our hearts, we pray. Open our minds, even as you said in this third verse here, the the, the 15th verse of this last chapter, open our minds, things to see that we normally couldn't see or understand. Help us, God. We need your Spirit to come and do this. In Jesus' name. This passage, it, it really describes God's plan to forgive sinful, rebellious, undeserving people like us who deserve His wrath without compromising His own just nature. That's where we're going with this. That's what this is all about. The, this Old Testament passage here, right here, is the most quoted passage in the New Testament out of the Old Testament. New Testament writers identify this person, this servant, as Jesus. And Jesus himself identifies this suffering servant in Luke where he quotes this passage. Now, this passage that I just read is referred to as by many commentators as a poem or a song. In fact, it's the first of a number of songs, uh, the fourth, the last, the fourth and the last of a number of songs written about this servant, a servant that would come. This particular song that we're reading here has five stanzas of three verses each. And so we're just going to take those five stanzas and talk about them today. Isaiah is describing a Savior, a completely unexpected Savior, completely unexpected. No one saw this coming. No one could have imagined that what he's describing here is what's going to happen and what God has planned. In Luke chapter 2, verse 10, the angel says to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you great news, good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. News of great joy, and yet, When you think about what Isaiah has written here, it doesn't appear very joyful. It's a very solemn passage in many ways. Isaiah, this is so important to keep in mind, Isaiah is saying this 700 years before Christ comes to the earth. So 700 years before Christ is even set to come to the earth, Isaiah is describing this. And if you look at this, what's amazing is it's like Isaiah is standing at the foot of the cross. It's like he has sat there and looked out over Jesus' life. He's sat there watching Jesus live his life. He's sat there realizing what God has done through Jesus. He's at the foot of the cross, and he's watching it all take place. He's watching the nails. He's watching everything, and he's describing it. It's an incredible passage of Scripture 700 years before Christ comes. This prophecy lies at the heart of the Christian message. At at the heart of the joy that this angel announced, to understand and appreciate Christmas, we must understand this passage. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, said this about this passage. 
Methinks Isaiah wrote not a prophecy, but a gospel. It is the deepest and loftiest thing in the Old Testament prophecy outstripping itself has ever achieved. Isaiah was literally writing the gospel. So let's take each of these stanzas and let's talk about each one of them. First, I want to talk about the fact that this is, as Isaiah presents it, a sacrifice. And the first thing we see about it in the first stanza, which is chapter, or chapter 52, 13 through 15, it's a victorious sacrifice. Now, it's an interesting place to start. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. And yet you'll be astonished because he will be almost unrecognizable because of what happens to him. Unrecognizable as a human being. He will be high and lifted up, exalted. Now, it's interesting that this first stanza gives so much hope in one sense because it it ends with this reality that kings will shut their mouths and people will see him and finally understand. But it's important that we get hope right here because what we're about to read, what we'll see, is absolutely devastating, totally unexpected, at least and surely by the Jews and the Israelite people at that time. He's high and lifted up, yet his sacrifice was subjected to so much punishment, he was unrecognizable as a human being. Can you imagine that scene? Imagine Isaiah, in a sense, sitting there looking at this and and seeing that he's virtually unrecognizable as a human being because of what has happened to him on the cross. And it says we are astonished. The NIV says appalled, gives it just a little bit more emotion. You stand and you look at this and it's so mind-boggling that it's appalling to you, appalling to the people at that time. But ultimately, look at the victory. He's victorious over kings, victorious. They, They hear it and they understand God's doing something to them. But notice what he says, they do it. He does it through sprinkling. He's sprinkling them. He's, with his own blood, changing hearts and lives. And notice finally about this, this victory, that it talks about the nations. See, this was not in Israel's purview. They were not thinking to themselves, oh, God's going to save the nations. In fact, it was quite the opposite. They were thinking, God's going to reject the nations. It's all about Israel. But here, Jesus says, or I mean, Isaiah says, this is God reaching the nations. So we have this picture of a victorious sacrifice. But secondly, we see it's a despised sacrifice. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Man's unbelief is highlighted here. Jesus used this passage and Paul both used this passage to highlight the unbelief in people's hearts as they heard the message even after the actual death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's inescapable to me that this response of incredulity is in response to what we have just read. This appalling scene having such an effect, so dishonored yet so highly exalted. God's ways make no sense to the human mind. They don't understand it. 
When Philippians 2 says that Jesus, though equal with God, did not grasp his equality, but emptied himself. It's, it's a picture happening here. This suffering servant, who we heard last week from Ron, was the king that Jesus sent. This just makes this more powerful to realize what he said last week. This was a king God was sending, and now here's this king suffering on a cross. Makes no sense to the human mind. The arm of the Lord, this term used here is used throughout the Old Testament to refer to the Lord's power, His strength, His might. And that's shocking again when you think of it in the brutal reality of this treatment He receives, especially when we see it in the light of the cross. And yet when you think about that reality of the cross, the cross, what Isaiah is saying here is that the cross is the ultimate display of God's power. You will never in your life see a display of God's power like this. This is the ultimate display of God's power. There's no reason to suspect here, and in the midst of all that, no reason to see why this person was anything special. In fact, Isaiah is saying he's quite the opposite. He's not special at all. He's very common. He's nothing to look at, nothing to grab your attention. He says, one commentator says it this way, we look at him and there is nothing to look at. <laughs> he grew up like a tender shoot, a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. No former majesty that we should look at him. No beauty to desire him. This takes us back, if you think back to Samuel, when God called David, who this man is called, this Messiah is called the root of Jesse. You remember what happened when God was calling David, and they were looking for this mighty deliverer, and God says, don't look at the outward. Don't miss this. You're looking at the outward. Don't do that, Samuel. This is going to be different. He had no appearance to commend himself. He was so ordinary, and his intrinsic beauty was hidden from people by his commonness. Listen, he was raised in a blue-collar home. There was nothing, nothing impressive here. He was not handsome, in some ways not even noticeable. He worked as a carpenter. He was from Nazareth, and if you remember from Nathaniel's response in John chapter 2, he said, can't anything good come out of Nazareth? That's, that's the way Jewish people thought back then. He came from nothing. Listen, little about his birth is either nostalgic or touching or tender or quaint. It's a picture of rejection. When we look at our nativity scenes, we see this nice sanitized vision of Jesus and he's laying in this soft straw and it all looks so wonderful. But the reality, it's a picture of rejection, discomfort, and inconvenience. The whole thing was rejection. The innkeeper, the barn, the animals, the feeding trough, the no vacancy sign. That no vacancy sign was the reality of his entire life. As Jesus once said to his disciples, the birds of the air have nests, the foxes have holes, the Son of Man has nowhere. That sign, that no vacancy sign remained over his life his entire life. Nancy Wolgamuth, in her book on the, uh, that I was reading recently, 
said this, when deity put on humanity, Jesus understood he was simultaneously putting on humility. Whereas in heaven, he was the undisputed center of all attention on earth. He was undeniably persona non grata. Rather than demand a certain level of accommodation, he lived wherever he lived. He accepted being unaccepted. This was the branch. This was the little shoot coming up. That little shoot comes up in Isaiah chapter 11 where Ron was last week where he talks about this, this branch coming out of the stump of Jesse and he contacts it to Jesse who was the father of King David but prior to that Jesse was unknown. Jesse was a nobody. So when he says it's a root coming up out of the stump of Jesse we're talking about a nobody coming out of a nobody in a sense insignificant, small. No wonder the Jewish people didn't recognize him because Isaiah 11 verse 4 talks about this man coming and he will strike the earth and kill the wicked. I mean, when, when they thought about the Messiah, that's what they thought of. This guy's going to come. He's going to destroy the wicked. He's going to tear down these institutions that are, are enslaving us. He's going to destroy them. This is what they thought of when they thought of the Messiah. The ones who crucified Jesus really believed in the Messiah. They really did. They believed he would come. They just didn't see this son of David being the one. He had no appearance and, he, and no ability apparently to deliver them. But instead of bringing a rod, as chapter 11 verse 4 says, against the wicked, God was bringing a little branch, a little twig, a seemingly insignificant man whom we would not, Isaiah says, we would not esteem him, despised, rejected by man, from men who hide their faces from him, and we esteemed him not. This is us. This is mankind turning their backs, not caring about him. We see this in the New Testament. Jesus' own family rejects him. We see Peter rejects him. We see the disciples all desert him in the face of having been told by Jesus a number of times exactly what would happen, and yet they still rejected Jesus. The prophet goes from simply dismissing him to despising him. That word's used twice in that one little verse. And that's exactly what happened from being ignored to crucified. We did not esteem him. Listen, there's no reason why you should esteem him now. There's no reason why you sit here today with any esteem for Jesus outside of this one fact. God, like he said in chapter 53, verse 15, let you understand something that you could not understand. He has opened your eyes. He has allowed you to finally esteem this Savior. Without God's sovereign work in your heart, that could not be. This little branch would be used as Isaiah in chapter 10 at the very end. He talks about this little branch being used to, as he said in verse 34 of Isaiah 10, he will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, 
and Lebanon will fall by this majestic one. So once again, we're talking about these people. They're expecting a great and powerful deliverer. But this tender shoot would fell them all. The most powerful. See, they were looking at enemies surrounding them. At this point, Isaiah was looking at the Assyrians out there surrounding them. In Jesus' day, they were looking at the Romans out there surrounding them. But this shoot, the most will tear down the most powerful and mighty forces of our lives. Death, hell, sin, the depths of hell, the finality of the grave, the power of sin. Ultimately, the tyranny of Satan himself will be torn down by this little shoot. The very thing that they couldn't see and understand is what he's come to do. What does this mean for you today. You're sitting there at home. You're watching this. God bless you for being there listening. What does it mean for you today to be thinking about this tender shoot? What does he do in light of what he does and the power over these things who are your real enemies and have always been the real enemies? Death, hell, sin. What difference does that make in your life? Is there anything else you need to fear? Is there anything this branch can't accomplish for you? You know the answer to that. What difference does it make in your life when you face fears and anxieties on a daily basis? It brings a wonder for salvation to know this branch brought a dominating, overwhelming victory over all the enemies who really make any difference in your life. His victory is assured even when you can't see it. So it was a victorious sacrifice. It was a despised sacrifice. And thirdly, it was a substitutionary sacrifice. Surely, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Not only is this third stanza the centerpiece of this song, but this centerpiece is the atonement for our sins. This centerpiece of this song is the centerpiece of the entire Bible. Everything in the Bible comes back and points to this reality of what Isaiah is describing in this chapter, the Savior who will give his life to tear down and destroy the enemies who really are your enemies. Ten times throughout our text today, he uses this phrase, these kinds of phrases, he bore, carried, upon him, laid on. These are terms that are used constantly, ten times throughout this passage. To look at this, these groups are saying, he was smitten of God. So as, as Isaiah is sitting there, as I talked about it at the foot of the cross, People are doing the logical. They're looking at this. He's being crucified by the Romans. And they're saying, well, obviously he did something wrong. The Romans don't just do that. So he's being smitten by God, thinking it's his own sin. And yet Isaiah makes it very clear in this passage. He was smitten by God, but not for his sin, but for ours. This is made clear in the Verse 5 in the he, him, us, our phraseology, it says, He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. There's something going on here, folks. 
He's making it very clear that this is the atonement. This is not about this suffering servant dying because he did something, but because something is happening that God's foreordained to do through him, smitten by God, estranged from God. My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Behind all the jealousy, behind all the vehemence of the Jewish leaders, their quest to execute Jesus is God the Father accomplishing His perfect will to placate His own anger against sin. This is the awesome reality. This is God Himself at work. This was substitutionary act on the behalf of those people that He would die for. But all of it done for us, pierced, crushed, chastised, wounded. Our sin is the reason for all of this. This is Isaiah's description of Christmas. This is Isaiah's who is coming. A child? A baby? Yes, a baby. But who is coming? If there would be no sin, there would be no Christmas. We must understand that. He's not seeking, Isaiah's not seeking to dampen our joy over Christmas, but to deepen our joy because Christmas confronts our sin. Listen to this. Nancy Walgamuth again says this. Joy, in order to be real joy, requires a suitable counterweight. It must stand in glorious contrast to something utterly bleak and hopeless, something totally bereft of joy. And the joy of Christmas does exactly that. It shines against a backdrop of banishment. Our sins had alienated us from God, leaving us no reason to expect a rescue. We were left alone left for dead. That's the reality behind why the Savior came and why it's such great joy and such wonderful news for people. Yet on the cross, what's happening is a substitution. Jesus bore all this wrath for us, so it's a victorious sacrifice. It's it's a despised sacrifice. It's a substitutionary sacrifice. But fourthly, it's a perfect sacrifice. So in our fourth stanza, we see this perfect sacrifice. The stanza deals with the way the servant is treated and how he responds to it. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is, <laughs> the Bible says he's fed to the slaughter. Now, those are powerful words. He's fed to the slaughter, yet he makes no response. Like a sacrificial lamb going to the sacrificial table. Pilate says, will you not answer any of these accusations? <laughs> and Jesus says nothing. Isaiah, seeing this 700 years before it takes place. He suffers silently, even though Jesus himself said, hey, listen, I could call 12 legions of angels right now. 
And they would gladly come and deliver me. And this wouldn't be a pretty scene for them, for the other people. But he says nothing. No legions of angels. This new David, one commentator said, gives his life for the sheep who strangely are his murderers. He's oppressed, yet he bears it quietly, uncomplaining. And then the prophet asked this question. Who considered? Who considered that he was cut off? Who considered that? It's a question we're asking today. The prophet is asking this question today. Who considered? Are you considering today? Is this something that you're consciously listening to and looking at these verses and considering what he did for you, that he suffered this death on account of our sin? Are you considering that? Nobody there at Jesus' death understood this. Not the religious leaders, not the people, not even the disciples. At the end of the stanza, he says this, there was no violence and no deceit in him. He died the perfect sacrifice. And finally, we come to the last stanza. The last stanza is a sovereign sacrifice. Yet, verse 10 says, yet, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Now just just let those words sink down a little bit. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Who was at work here? Was it Roman soldiers? Was it the high Sanhedrin council? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He returns to this sovereignty, Isaiah does, this sovereignty of God, which we've already seen. Men are instruments of God's will, but God was the source. He crushed him in order to satisfy his own justice, as Paul said in chapter 3 of Romans, so that he could be just, remain just, remain in his integrity, and yet justify the wicked, those who should not receive this. God's at work doing this. This is God's plan and God's way of dealing with this. Here, we're at the apex of this passage, the gospel. This was not a human tragedy. It was God's glorious plan to redeem human beings. It wasn't the Jews or Pilate or the Sanhedrin or the soldiers who killed Jesus. It was His Father. God's love was revealed in the death of His Son by His own hand. Where Abraham was called by God to stay His hand before killing His Son, God did exactly that. Crucified His own Son. In chapter 1 of Isaiah, verse 11, he says, The Lord has no delight in the blood of goats and bulls. But here we see God has great delight in the blood of his own son. Why? 
You know, there are people that reject the gospel because they can't fathom a father that would do that. They can't. They just can't say, no, no, God can't be like that. Can't happen. But that's exactly what Isaiah is saying happening. At this point, Isaiah turns to the, returns to the triumphant victory that we see in the first stanza, this reality that he will see his offspring. He will bear many children through this. Now we start seeing why God's been willing to do this. Because he's doing it to save children, adopt children for himself. His days will never end. Ultimately, God's will will prosper, he says, because we see the resurrection is the reality that his days will never end. Though there is anguish of soul, Jesus himself will be satisfied, satisfied by the fact that they're bearing, that he's bearing their iniquities, and many will be accounted righteous. Many will be accounted righteousness, righteous because of what he has done. And Jesus sees this. It says, by his knowledge, my servant will know this. He knows exactly what was happening. He knew God's plan. He knew God was making satisfaction for sin. He knew he was the sacrifice, and he knew it would be effective. And he knew it would make someday you righteous by faith in him. Jose, you knew, he knew it would make you righteous one day. Bill, Malcolm, he knew. Ashley, Mela, he knew. He knew. He knew, Faith Ann. He knew one day. Mike, he knew it. He knew it. He knew it would make you righteous one day. And he went to the cross to do just exactly that to make many be accounted righteousness. Second Corinthians 5:21, God made him. Notice, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. God did that. It was a sovereign act of God. And it leads to final triumph. The worship team could come. We get to the last line of verse 12. And we see this word again. Yet. He comes back to that word. Yet. And he says, yet he will bear the sin of many. One last time he's got to come back to this reality. Yet he's bearing the sin for others. This is us. The price paid. God remains just and we are justified. It's a sovereign sacrifice. It's a perfect sacrifice, a substitutional sacrifice. It was a despised sacrifice, but it's a victorious sacrifice. As a result, he's seated at the right hand of God, making intercession for all of us. Now, as I close this, we need to read this passage in the light of John 3.16.
All right? Probably the most familiar passage in the Bible which most of you have memorized. John 3.16. For God, God, the author of this whole thing, this whole plan, the sovereign one, God, so loved the world that he gave his only son. This gift of a servant. Gift of a king? Absolutely. But the gift of a servant. Not just a servant, but a suffering servant who would give it all in our behalf. Whom the Father himself, it says, will put to death. God gave him. What does that word gave mean? It means he gave him to the death. Himself sacrificing his son. That any who would put their faith in him would be forgiven and given eternal life by faith in this finished work. For God so loved, Jesus came out of love. He comes to you today in love. Listen, folks, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, it's right to feel loved. All right? It's right to feel loved. In fact, in light of what we have said today, if you don't feel loved, there's something wrong. He didn't come because you were lovable. His love came first. That's what Isaiah is talking about, and that's what Christmas is all about. And if you believe that by faith, you'll feel his love today. But to be unwilling to trust God's love is to impugn his character and really reflects a worldly mindset in the guise of false humility. You are loved. And if this story doesn't convince you of that, you can't be convinced. God sent His only Son, gave Him out of love that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. Receive His love today by faith because He said it and because in Jesus He acted upon it. Let's pray. Father, Father, today, God, Lord, in the face of this passage of Scripture, written 700 years before Christ ever came, by a man who it would appear by all rights sat there at the foot of the cross. Lord, it is overwhelming to us that you would do that. Lord, please help us to understand. Lord, as believers sitting here today who have maybe heard this message multiple times in their lives and yet whose hearts remain still having hardness there, taking it for granted. Lord, would you help us to consider today? Would you open our hearts to see this? Lord, may we be so, may we be so affected deep in our souls by what you've done 
reason of why you did it. That our lives would be different. I pray that people would go home today and there'd be a difference in their heart as they contemplate your coming and the cross. Father, I pray that people would rejoice in your love. That this week, many, some, and I I would even prophetically say there are some here today who struggle mightily with feeling loved. Listen, God wants you to know He's already said it and He's done everything needed to be done to prove it. Rejoice. Feel His love today. For that's why He came to do it. That's why He came for us. Open our hearts, Lord. Change us a